It has been uh, a learning experience for everybody. And, and mm. I'm quite linked in through the Employee Mobility Institute, which is based in Australia, this industry organisation. I've been on the um, nominations task force for this year's awards. So I've been talking to businesses um, throughout Australia and New Zealand as part of that process. Um, mm. And, you know, nobody knew what to do. Uh, mm. Everybody had to work through, you know, the kind of what we call the triage, the first step of just getting, making sure everybody knew where they were, what they're doing, they were safe, mm. you know, they weren't over the limits of their visas, da, da, da. and then since then businesses, and a lot of cases, and this is one of the points I wanted to make, is that they've had to really take a lot more of a personalised approach to global mobility. Hello and welcome to the Thriving Abroad podcast. I'm Louise Wiles, your host for these conversations where we share stories, strategies and tips to help you build a thriving international life. Pre-pandemic, we talked about a VUCA world and felt we understood what a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world looked like. Now, mid-pandemic, I think we are only just beginning to understand what it really means. Disruption and uncertainty have plagued the experience of the internationally mobile for months now, and second spikes and new border closures are simply ratcheting things up again. Now, if you're facing challenge in your international life as an expat, then do take a look at the series of interviews I did for the Thriving Abroad Together series. Go to episodes, episodes 20 and 21. They provide an overview of the interviews. You can listen to those first and then select the ones that will be of most support to you. There are show notes for each episode along with some coaching questions to help you reflect. To access an overview of the complete series, go to thrivingabroad.com and click on the Thriving Abroad Together tab underneath the podcast tab. You can also register for the newsletter and when you do, you'll receive a link to the four playbooks I created featuring the show notes for all of these episodes. A great free resource. So on to today's episode. I speak to Bridget Remains, founder of Mobile Relocation in New Zealand. We talk about how she and her clients, corporate HR global mobility teams, have reacted to the pandemic and pivoted services to support expats and repats affected by the pandemic. So this is a great conversation to listen to if you work in the field of global mobility and relocation support. But there are also some great insights and ideas for expats and the internationally mobile. Simply listening to the depth of care and support is uplifting. Now, as always, you can access the associated blog post in the Thri at the Thriving Abroad website. Look for episode 60 and from there you can also download the full transcript. Enjoy today's conversation. So lovely to have you joining the conversation today, Bridget. Thank you, Louise, and hello from New Zealand. Yeah, we are really half a world apart <laughs> and half we a are. day apart as well. Your morning, <laughs> my evening, um, always confusing. <laughs> but lovely to have you joining the Thriving Board conversation today. So I'm really interested to start by just hearing a little bit about you and how you kind of have come to be working in the area of, of global mobility and relocation. Sure. Well, I guess my global mobility background is, is from the ground up, literally. Um, I uh, was a diplomat 
and had postings in uh, Singapore and India. And during that period, uh, without even knowing what relocation or resettlement support was, apart from, you know, whether people in the office happened to help you or be nice to you or not, I managed to traverse most um, aspects of the expat experience. I went overseas, first of all, um, I think I was only two years out of university uh, when I went to India and I didn't even know what shipping was. They came up to assess my um, my possessions, which consisted of what I had in my bedroom and my flat, and they must have um, put it into a tea chest or something <laughs> and sent it off. Um, and uh, when I came back from India, I had a partner with me who uh, returned, so I came back with a spouse. Um, and then uh, my next posting, we went off together as a dual career couple to Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we were in Singapore, I uh, had two children. Uh, so I returned, and I had also at that point um, stepped out of uh, being a diplomat. I decided I didn't want to travel um, and, and work internationally so much when I had children. So we came back to New Zealand with me as a trailing spouse, and I had started my own business while I was in Singapore. Uh, as well, uh, with two children pregnant with another one. Uh, So I repatriated for the second time into a country where I knew nothing really about the education system apart from having experienced it myself, but as a parent, I was completely Mm -hmm. unfamiliar with it. Um, And uh, felt, found that a very interesting experience. And then a few years later, I ended up working for um, a resettlement company in New Zealand, Uh, and did that for a year or so working with their expat clients coming into the country. Uh, And during that period, I sort of had a a coming together of my personal experience and also my experience as diplomat and running my own business to sort of think there's probably a little bit of a better way that we could be running resettlement services in New Zealand. And to me, that meant being very close to our corporate clients Uh, because most New Zealand companies don't have large global mobility programs. We have very few um, multinational companies that are indigenous Mm -hmm. to New Zealand. Uh, And again, large multinationals have limited operations in New Zealand, which are often run from offshore. So the mobility model here is really different. So what I thought we could do um, is be the global mobility team in an external sense, but effectively being part of our corporate HR partners, teams. And then on the assignee side, the situation in New Zealand is very different too. Uh, There's no real expat community uh, like you, like I experienced in Singapore or or India or even, you know, London or New York. There's no international schools here. Um, You know, you're hard pressed to find um, uh, international language groups for your children. um, And there's no clubs or sort of networking opportunities within the expat community. You really need to operate in New Zealand life. So again, the resettlement services that we deliver have to be a lot more tailored and specific and thoughtful um, than they do in large cities. So that was five years ago now. We founded Mobile Relocation to provide that new model of relocation and resettlement services uh, Mm. to New Zealand businesses and multinational businesses here uh, in New Zealand. Fantastic. And that's really interesting, actually, the very fact that you don't have all the expat sort of communities and options. It kind of forces people relocating or moving into New Zealand to, to, to actually integrate 
more fully into into local culture and communities, I guess. Um, and another aspect yeah. which is quite different too in New Zealand is that um, a large proportion of our resettlement clients are not necessarily expats who are on a three or four year rotation. They're migrating to New Zealand. They're what we call, you know, scarce international talent. We have large school shortages. <laughs> New Zealand um, so businesses offer people long-term roles and they migrate to New Zealand but they're effectively coming in in the same way the next pat would and that they you mm. know need all the same level of support um, but they're here for the long term so that community would be larger than the expat community um, right they're sort of mingled in together and certainly need the same support when they first arrive yeah yeah. So do you find that because you're supporting them and organising all of this, are you are you bringing them together? So in a way, are you able to create this kind of, yeah, this mm, community for absolutely. them? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. One of the things that we um, highlight to our clients is that they need three sets of um, of um, social connections to be successful. They need to maintain their connections with their family and friends back home. They need to make some New Zealand friends and they also mm. need to make a point of having some international friends in New Zealand. Uh, you need a balance between all those three groups, otherwise people become you know, either looking backwards, forwards, or disavowing um, the past. Uh, but that expat migrant, people who've been through the same experience with you can share the ups and downs is really significant. And we, a lot of our follow-up work with our clients, which they're settled in, and they've done the initial stuff of finding houses and schools as we run a dinner club, we have coffee groups to sort of facilitate those connections between our clients, you know, who mm. are a mixture of expats and migrants. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Um, and so, obviously, New Zealand is the kind of, well, you, I'm thinking about pandemic now, and, and you, you've just actually got the well, all clear, do we call it the all clear? I don't know. But Auckland has just been, are, are you now, all, all measures have been dropped or about to be? I think. Yeah, we're back. Yes, week. that was just a couple of days ago. We're down on level mm-hmm. one. We now have fewer COVID cases in New Zealand than there are in the White House. <laughs> and do we know how many there are in the White House at the moment? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> The ones that they've reported, yes. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Um, but yes, I mean, how many how many do you have in New Zealand at the moment? I think, I, from memory, I mean, you put me on the spot here. I think it was 24 last time I looked. We still have, um, New, New Zealanders have automatic right to return to New Zealand. So we have what we mm-hmm. call imported COVID cases um, coming in right. all the time. Our community transition transmission, so that's within New right. Zealand cases, have been at zero now, I think, for 10 days. We had a, okay. a small outbreak, which is why the restrictions were reimposed. Prior yeah. to that, we'd have days without any community transmission. Yeah. <coughs> and so presumably they go into quarantine, do they? People yeah. Who, yeah. 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 So, so that's picked up and they're treated and then released after yeah. that. So in terms of, you know, the impact of pandemic on global mobility in, in New Zealand, can you paint a picture of, of what the impact mm. has been and is currently? Yeah. Well, we... Um, you know, had one of the fastest and strictest lockdowns and border closures mm. in the world back in March. And since then, residents and returning New Zealand residents and citizens have the right to return. So if they're lucky enough right. to be expats or uh, or not even expats, just wanting to come home, they can do that. Uh, mm-hmm. 
to start with, nobody else could come into the country. Now we have a system of what's called border exemptions, which are extremely difficult to, to obtain. They're case by case. Applications have to be made to Immigration New Zealand about a person's, um, that their work is critical in nature to COVID recovery, that their skills are not readily available in New Zealand. Um, and they're, they're quite difficult to get. Some of our corporate clients have managed to get them for people, uh, infrastructure projects, things like that. Obviously, health mm. workers and that sort of critical worker there's not a problem with, but people who are coming in to do jobs um, in the wider economy, in the business sector, mm. um, it's very, very difficult. So really global mobility for us over the last little while has been initially triage work. You know, we had people um, stuck offshore. We've got a couple of cases of people who had their possessions in New Zealand. They were offshore. One of those we've just got an exemption for, and she's due to arrive here next week. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, there's been a lot of look, looking and waiting and following mm. policy announcements and working with immigration advisors and just sort of keeping things ticking over for businesses. Um, mm. So the main two sort of impacts of that have been that skill shortages are starting to rise in the New Zealand economy. We have an election next week um, and the government has already signalled that there will you know, that they are aware of this problem um, and that it's not going to be widespread immigration and global mobility is not going to go back to any sort of normal in the near future. But most of the businesses we work with, the people that they're bringing in, they're bringing in because they are scarce talent. Um, mm. So, you know, we're sort of hoping that over the next few months that situation becomes a bit clearer and the process for obtaining access to New Zealand uh, becomes a bit more transparent and less case by case. Um, right. So that's the outlook. Um, in terms of the impact on the global mobility industry, I'd say the main impact on the industry has been a real shift towards focus on well-being. Um, okay. mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, we physically can't get people across the borders, so we've got to make sure that they're okay, you know, mm. wherever they are and whatever situation they're in. And our um, immediately after the lockdown was imposed as well as doing the sort of admin work in the background, we were had worked last year with Dr. Sonia Yeager, who's an expat mental health um, mm. expert. She was in lockdown in France. Uh, and we did, I don't know how many workshops for our clients, people who were either expats who were stuck in New Zealand, we have even got onto the subject of people who are, you know, living in one country and can't get back to elderly family and all those sorts of stresses. Mm -hmm. And then also the second group was the people who were sort of stuck offshore. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had amazing response from our clients to our suggestions that 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 was going to be an important area um, for them going forward. Fantastic. So what kind of workshops was she doing? um, Mm. Well, it was really, um, you know, there were two objectives. One was to sort of... um, Get, help people have an understanding of the emotions that they might be going through um, mm-hmm. from a psychological point of view, why they were feeling the way they were, um, the fact that Sonia was seeing similar um, symptoms, feelings, circumstances with her international clientele all over the world, sort of normalising mm-hmm. some of it, I guess, and giving people some strategies to work through those. And then the other part of it, which... Um, you know, we we always see with our well-being work is the power of the group. You know, we'd have like mm. 30 or 40 people up on the screen and people would start volunteering their own stories. And, you know, the, we always do feedback um, feedback surveys afterwards and that came through really strongly, um, just hearing that other people were in the same position. So it's kind of like that mix of expert um, 
uh, information and then mm-hmm. personal stories. And the other, sorry, the third thing I should mention too is how much people felt valued employed, um, and cared about by their employers. You know, mm-hmm. that their employer mm-hmm. in New Zealand was sending them an email saying, we've got mobile and a mental health expert to do this workshop for you guys because we know it's really tough for you. Um, you know, that was huge for the, for the employer brand and the yeah. employee mm-hmm. experience as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fantastic. And th- so you organised that for companies to, to be part of or were you doing them specifically for set companies? How did that Yeah, work? we do. Yeah, um, I think... I feel more comfortable doing it um, by business because then mm. it keeps sort of in-house because, you know, people do tell their personal stories. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And from the business's point of view, it also means it's more of a, a, a sort of a, um, a specific gesture for the for their team mm. of people. And I suppose it's an example of how the pandemic's encouraged us all to be a bit more human yeah. <laughs> in the working interruption. I mean, you kind of would hope that, having been through a relocation experience and perhaps, you know, working away from families anyway, if we're working offshore or, or you know, relocating and, and having those, you know, the adjustment challenge, that there would be, you know, a bit more of a conversation around that anyway. But I think often there hasn't been. And I think mm. I'm seeing certainly the pandemic is encouraging people to, to open up and, and, and share those stories with their employers which is really important, isn't it? Because the employers then understand what they're going through. And Absolutely. And yeah. In fact, we've carried this um, process through uh, on an ongoing way. We've just, we had Mental Health Awareness Week in New Zealand about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we put forward again to a number of our clients uh, that we should run some uh, expat leaders uh, panels, which we've done, we just did the last one a few days ago, um, where we asked the business to identify three of their leaders who are expats or migrants to New Zealand. Uh, and I facilitate an online workshop with them. And it's amazing role modeling for the business. These people were quite mm-hmm. happy to talk about, you know, their struggles and their joys of relocating yeah. to New yeah. Zealand and COVID. Um, and the, again, the, the, the buy-in from the uh, people on the team, and, and I can think of one in particular, the way they have, Offices, so they've got three or four offices throughout New Zealand and some in Australia. So we had a group, you know, an international group there. So mm, they didn't necessarily mm. know all of those leaders, but they were piping in with their stories and experiences and how they had experienced COVID and, and relocating and, and all the rest of it. So, and, and that was really nice because the what we'd done early when COVID first hit was quite sort of external, external experts, um, that sort of approach, whereas now we're bringing it within the organisation, um, mm. you know, to facilitate those conversations on a regular daily basis. And at the yeah. end of the panel discussion, all the panellists said, look, you know, if any of you want to talk about this further, just come back to me personally. You know, and that's just such a healthy way to be handling um, mental health and well-being during a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the other aspect of it too is that for those organisations, most of which have a really high level of international talent in the organisations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then normalising that the experience of those those international employees is different to the experience of New Zealand employees. Um, mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. true normally, uh, but especially during COVID. Um, you know, yeah. I don't think yeah. that New Zealand employees necessarily always realise how difficult it is um, for their co-workers. You know, they're working in, in, in a very easy environment here in New Zealand, yet they've got 
family and friends, you know, in South Africa or Spain or mm. places where, um, you know, life is really, really tough, you know, and they're having to yeah. support them. And I suppose, yes, if they're not hearing them speak about it and share that, then they yeah, don't actually connect that that is an issue anyway. And I suppose, yeah, okay, they're talking through pandemic, but, you know, expats, have those have challenges other than pandemic in terms of living away from family elderly parents and all of those things and so unless you've experienced it yourself you probably don't think about it and realize how unsettling sometimes those challenges can be so yeah great to open it up so um so yeah talking about mental well-being so do you do you see do you think this is something that you're going to continue going forward post-pandemic can you see sort of value for these more open yeah. conversations continue. Indeed. Well, we, we'd actually started this work pre-pandemic. Um, last, in, no, 2019, Mental Health Awareness Week, was Dr. Mm. Sonia Yeager was in New Zealand. So we did a series of ah. workshops. Mm. And at that point, you know, really it was about um, a lot of education. We introduced the relocation cycle, Hofstetter's relocation mm-hmm. cycle, you know, which most people have never seen before um, and sort of normalised that through our clients and, and some others. Who, who come to work with us since then. Uh, and we actually won an award at the Employee Mobility Institute, which is um, our sort of global mobility industry body for Australia and New Zealand. We won an award for that program that we did in 2019 um, then. And so really we had always planned to have a series of workshops for 2020 and we were just launching those when sort of COVID hit. So yeah. <laughs> some of that has continued on. So as you mentioned before, it's not just COVID well-being uh, mm. for expats. It's an issue. It's ongoing well-being. So we have also run a series of workshops on everything from how to help your child thrive in New Zealand um, to making friends, you know, when you move to a new country. So mm-hmm. a series of issues like that, things like that. Um, yes, and I do see it continuing. And, and I, I suppose really it's just about noticing what is going on and where people are struggling in the expat community and where I'm seeing that happen at the moment. And I just got off a call this morning. People who are doing international remote working, we have a number in that situation who, you know, in, in February this year, it wasn't what their organisation was set up for. It wasn't what their organisation wanted. It wasn't what the employee wanted because they would have been in New Zealand in March had COVID not happened but now here we are six months later and the only way to onboard these people and get them working in the jobs they needed to be doing was to have them stuck in their home country and now remote working mostly on New Zealand time and there are only a few countries in the world that share our time zone Mm -hmm. so most of these people are working opposite or completely distorted Um, days to where they're living Mm. Um, their connections with their family are really challenged because they might be working all night and needing to sleep all day and so they're they're Mm. not seeing their family and and being involved in family routines and rituals they're exhausted Um, and they're trying to um, to fit into a work culture that they've never experienced they haven't been Mm. physically on board they don't know their team members apart from people on the screen they don't understand Mm. the of the Kiwi workplace or culture. So they're all incredibly positive about their jobs. They love their work. They're so grateful that this situation has been manufactured for them, but it's really, really hard. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's that's something that was a circumstance that didn't exist at the beginning of this year, but yeah. it's a well-being challenge um, moving forward, certainly. And yeah. I think it's going to yeah. become 
um, the more that remote international working is seen as an option rather than a stopgap. Um, you know, it seems like a simple solution, but at the moment I feel we're trading off the back of a lot of existing relationships and teamwork and understanding. And the longer that we don't have that actual in-country experience and the person-to-person contact, the harder mm. it is going to be to maintain um, international remote working successfully. Yeah, <clears throat> no, I would absolutely agree. And I, I, I was thinking exactly about this today. It was funny because yesterday I heard on Radio 4 they, um, they were interviewing... James Dyson. Do you, do you know like, Dyson? Yeah, yeah. vacuum cleaners, I think. Mm. Um, and, and he was saying, and they were talking about remote working and he, he and working from home. And he, he was saying, you know, that it can't work for the future. For the future, mm. for people to, what did he say, to learn and train, they have to be in the office. Now, I'm not 100% sure I agree, you know, with that yeah. as a blanket statement, but I, you know, the point that I have been thinking about recently was exactly the point you made, which is, you know, there are times when you need to be with your team face-to-face in person because there are just cues that you just don't get, you know, in a group on Zoom and, and, and also to understand culture, really, I think, yeah, and the cultural nuances of the, the team, the organisation, and not least, and also the country. And, I, yeah, I'm really interested. The people who are talking about, you know, the view of the future being remote working, um, I just don't see it longer term. Oh, you know, I think it's going to be a mix, isn't it? Uh, and and are people really going to want to work from home all the time? Mm. Um, you know, for me, I've worked from home for for quite a number of years, and 2020, ironic, ironically, was my year of I'm going to get out more. I'm going to be, you know, yeah. going places more because <laughs> I'm fed up with working from home and behind the computer screen. Ha <laughs> ha How funny that was! Yeah. Well, exactly <laughs> the opposite. But I I I think the isolation and you know and I wonder whether the fear that comes from the pandemic and not wanting to get onto public transport and and traveling and mixing once the pandemic comes to an end you know, eventually um and that fear is removed I wonder then will people have a different opinion about mm. how they're working and being exactly. at home all the time you know as I say with my these candidates are a perfect example they have no choice nobody has any choice yes. at the moment no no um, no but when people do, well, I know they're desperate to get to New Zealand. They certainly want to. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they don't see it as a long-term option. It's just not no, tenable. No, no, no. Yeah, and I mean that's from the personal sort of how it's working for them side. Not and and on the other side, you have all the the technical side from a tax perspective and yes. you know where people yes. are sitting and all of that, yeah. so immigration and so on. So, yeah, complex situation. In fact, there was a talk yesterday about it I listened to <laughs> from the tax and labour law perspective and you know, mm. so many questions to be answered around that. Mm. So I know one of the areas that you've been dealing with and is people coming back to us to, to New Zealand um, because of the pandemic, so repatriation back. Mm. Um, so what have been the challenges you've seen for that group of people who are coming back perhaps before their time or before they wanted to. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, we're, the New Zealanders returning to New Zealand is quite a different situation to expats repatriating in the sense that, um, you know, when, when a, a big organisation might pull its people out of a country and bring them back. And, you know, there has been a small amount of that in New Zealand, Fonterra, which is one of our major um 
major businesses has pulled their people, all the people out of China, for example, the families all came back mm-hmm. to New Zealand and then they would eventually go back to China and many of them have now. Um, I, you know, New Zealand has estimated, we have a population of 5 million, we have an estimated external population of 1 million, a diaspora around the world. And since March this year, 50,000 of that million have returned to New Zealand. We have never had such a flood of New Zealanders Mm -hmm. returning um, to New Zealand. Now, some of those people had to return. You know, they lost their jobs. They were on working holidays. Um, You know, they were tourists. So they really had no option. Mm. Um, But as part of that return to New Zealand, we've sucked back some of the amazing talent, the New Zealand talent that's been, you know, fueling the US economy, the British economy, working throughout (laughs) Europe and Asia. Um, and some of them, some of it's due to, to job insecurity, but a lot of it is that real kind of pull of home thing that's mm-hmm. going on. Um, mm-hmm. The numbers have started to drop off, drop off a bit now, and I, we, our understanding of that is that it's these the sort of people who had to come home have come home. But mm-hmm. what we're seeing now is an increase in inquiries from uh, people who are very well established in their careers. They they haven't lost their jobs, um, but they don't want to stay where they are. They want to come back to New Zealand. Um, okay. So this is really interesting because most of these people have been away upwards of 15 years and they have had a similar path to me. They haven't necessarily been back in between, but they left, you know, as we sort of stereotypically say, the Kiwi backpacker, and they come back with a full <laughs> container, often an international spouse and a couple of kids. So for them, they've been on holiday in New Zealand, but, you know, I can go on holiday to Bali or anywhere else and, you know, know the place as a tourist, but do they really know what it's like to live in New Zealand at that different stage in their life, mm-hmm. in their career, and being a very different person to the one who left, both in terms of age, but also, you know, that that different outlook on life that being an expat or living offshore gives you. Um, mm. So for them, you know, coming to New Zealand, we're finding that they actually need a pretty similar support package to an expat coming in. Mm. Um, obviously, the, the, the sort of leaving behind friends and the coming to family dynamic is different but that can pose its challenges too because family don't always see you as a different person and they may have certain ideas about um, (laughs) what you should be doing Um, so we're quite valuable to to them as an independent advisor in a lot of ways Um, (laughs) so yeah we're finding that we we're working with people prior to moving back quite a lot both in the sort of well-being space and helping them plan out um, what they need to do and and to have a sort of a good landing in New Zealand Mm. often providing quite a lot of support for, a, for an international spouse who can be organising the move but doesn't really know anything about what they're organising a life to be like when they get here. Uh, and then when they arrive, helping them sort out housing and selecting the right schools. Mm. And again, providing that sort of connection and wellbeing support as they adjust to life in New Zealand, um, mm. they return. And the other um, really interesting thing is that we're seeing with the, with the few expats who we are getting across the border at the moment and certainly with the returning New Zealanders a lot of people have what I don't want to kind of overblow it but it sort of summarizes it fairly simply is a kind of almost post-traumatic stress disorder they've been in the most terrible situations you know the people coming from the US haven't had their kids in school for eight months they have uh, a lot of people have a real rigmarole getting across the border into New Zealand their flights get cancelled innumerable times they book online the flight doesn't exist there's so much stress that people have gone through Um, all of their some of them had perhaps been thinking they might come back to New Zealand but it was a distant plan suddenly it's accelerated 
uh, and they arrive here really exhausted and very, very drained. Um, and then they have to go into isolation for two weeks. With their children, you know, <laughs> cooped up together. Um, so, you know, it's just completely different times um, mm -hmm. that, that everybody's moving countries in. And I can imagine, so, you know, repatriating, I guess for some, it, it, it's the, oh, you know, let's just go home and it's the kind of return to safety. Um, and, and they have expectations around that that you know, perhaps once they arrive just are not quite met, um, mm. as is often the case with repatriation, as I have found out in my, and that wasn't in a time of a pandemic either. But you, you kind of have this vision about what you're going back to and then you find that mm. that's actually not going to be the reality. And I, and I suppose, you know, are they coming back looking for jobs as well? If they, if they yeah, that can be the, the case mm. sometimes. Um, you know, that some people manage to get jobs. New Zealand businesses are increasingly almost looking at um, Kiwis as a talent pool now internationally because we can't get expats across the border. Um, but a lot of them, yeah, are coming back without jobs or without firm mm. employment. Mm. You know, sometimes it's quite hard to break into the New Zealand job market. You know, it, it would seem like a no-brainer. These people have got international experience, which is so valuable, mm. but a lot of New Zealand firms are still kind of hung up on um, where's your local experience, what have you been doing all this time? Um, you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're overqualified, um, all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, and yeah. so again, because New Zealand is such a small place, connections are really, really important. So their networks mm. you know, need work. And that's one of the things that we work with people on before they come is really helping them re-establish their networks mm. um, and mm. support them uh, in the job hunting um, phase of their return. And that's, I mean, that's a really important point for you know, non-pandemic times as well, which mm. I think often expats forget. Um, you know, because you're so focused on your role in a specific location that the the, the need to network and to assure, assure your future sort of mm. career trajectory is often something that yeah, people have in their minds but perhaps aren't actively pursuing just because Absolutely. of the nature of expat life, which is very much in the now, isn't it? So, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. So it's such an important thing to to, to, to remember and to, and to, to manage throughout the... Mm time yet or abroad um it's certainly something i've come across before um so in terms of companies and sort of how they have all been reacting and coping with this whole yeah. um experience you know much more focused on on well-being prompted by you <laughs> and the yeah, wonder we've got our clients who are amazing anyway but <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's true isn't it that you're, you're offering support and they're taking it um yeah. and and so yes that's a certain sector i guess of the market what what have you noticed though generally around mm. organizations and, and the way they've been reacting to the pandemic and and mm. their international employees mm. um yeah i guess um it has been uh, a learning experience for everybody and and mm. i'm quite linked in through the Employee Mobility Institute, which is based in Australia, this industry organisation. I've been on the um, nominations task force for this year's awards. So I've been talking to businesses um, throughout Australia and New Zealand as part of that process. Um, mm. And, you know, nobody knew what to do. 
Uh, mm. Everybody's had to work through, you know, the kind of what we call the triage, the first step of just getting making sure everybody knew where they were, what they're doing, they were safe, mm. you know, they weren't over the limits of their visas, da, da, da. and then since then, businesses, and a lot of cases, and this is one of the points I wanted to make, is that they've had to really take a lot more of a personalised approach to global mobility, um, mm. and where in the past, uh, you, you know, it might have been convenient. And there was a good enough level of service, you know, with a, working with a big RMC to um, say that XYZ was getting this level of service or these this package, um, and then you know that was done. They were left to it. Now businesses are having to be an awful lot more involved. They need to know what the immigration liabilities are, the tax liabilities. You know, they have a duty of care to make sure that people are actually all right from a well-being perspective mm. and a safety mm. perspective. So, you know, that has been really interesting and good for us in terms of our clients because it's really deepened our relationships with them um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, we're both, we're, we're working together with them, figuring out how we're going to deal with each situation as it comes up. Um, yeah. You know, I can give one example, um, which is the, the group of people I was talking before who are now internationally remote working you know, we've been through so many iterations of what we're going to do with these people and how we're going to communicate with them and what we're going to communicate. Um, you know, and now we're at the point where we've changed visa advisor because the first set of visa advisors weren't providing enough of that sort of almost like pastoral care because there is a lot of pastoral care involved in good visa work, mm-hmm. um, immigration work in terms of shepherding people through and supporting them and giving them options and making sure that they're looked after. So we've changed visa provider, you know, we've got a new visa strategy in place, we're kind of doing our best on supporting them through the remote working phase, Uh, they're now starting to look at bringing in repat Kiwis and targeting that as a group, so we're just involved in this completely ongoing and very um, specific and tailored mobility program that we are developing as we go, as needs require, Um, and the strategic focus you know, is shifting. There's most of the people in this this cohort of people, um, 17 of them, probably 12 of them would have been in the country by now. Um, right. Mm. And the rest are sort of spread out over a period mm. of time. Mm. So. Mm. so working it out as, as you go, but a lot more sort of individual focus on the personal, more flexibility, yeah. I guess, as a result, more needs-driven in terms of spotting the needs that the individual employees or groups of employees have and, and reacting to those so um so in a way it's kind of accelerated I guess what people were talking about pre-pandemic about global mobility and the, the need to be more needs um understand individual needs better and to to provide benefits and services that were targeted to the needs of individuals rather than sort of blanket RMC type approach yeah yeah, yeah I think so um yeah, and just the other thing too is that you know the, the volumes that you know I've always said you know cookie cutter services don't work in global mobility although they're easy to um, to to put in place from an HR perspective or from a business perspective you know you end up cutting cutting cookies that don't suit anybody really yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think the current situation is evidence of that you know I was talking to one. Um, a person who runs global mobility for a very large organisation the other day and just said, look, we can't move anybody, but we're busier than ever because of the need to, you know, be treating every case, case by case. 
so then what, what impact does that have from a cost perspective? I, mm. you know, I, I guess the question is going forward, you know, are fewer people going to be moved, but at a higher cost because there is this need for more personalised approach and support? Um, I wonder, mm. or will we be reverting back to? <laughs> well, I mean, we were before. It, you know, your cost is always relative to the investment you're making in the individual and the return that the business is wanting to get out of having them in that location. That's one factor. Um, the other factor, I guess, is that when you have a cookie cut approach, it may look cheaper on the surface, but in fact, you're probably giving some people more services than they really need. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, does a tailored approach actually enable you to have unders and overs and, and figure out something that mm. is better for the employee experience and is right costed um, for that individual? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of it too, I think that by neglecting the well-being aspect or not neglecting, by not specifically addressing well-being as a component of mobility programs, just looking at, you know, immigration tax, home search, Etc. Um, you're actually creating more problems because if you address well-being alongside that, and that's not an expensive exercise because a lot of well-being support is around education for people, which can be delivered, you know, as we are through workshops. Um, just getting everybody on the same page in terms of understanding the experience they're going through, um, with some expert advice, hearing the experiences of others helps people contextualise what they're doing because what I've seen time and time happen again is people are not understanding what they're going through emotionally and what they take Mm -hmm. it out on is the speed of the visa process or um, (laughs) the fact that shipping containers taking three months to get here or I hate all the houses. You know, that's more about what's going on in their wellbeing space than it is actually those you know, logistical factors of the relocation. Yes, yes. In fact, I was watching somebody talking about exactly that today and, and just thinking, yeah, no, it's not actually the, the practical issue of your stuff at the dock that you can't access. It's more the whole experience that you've just been through, which has been horrendous. And, exactly. and, and coming out, yeah, that's kind of sparked yeah. the reaction. No, yeah. and there are so many, once these things are unpicked for people, you know, things like decision fatigue, which is huge at the moment because every international vol- move involves 20 times more decisions than it did pre-COVID. Mm. Um, everything mm. is more complex to organise. So, again, yeah. I just people understanding that and being able to put how they're feeling and what they're experiencing into some sort of context and you know, academic framework, whatever you want to call it, helps them realise, okay, I'm not alone. This is a thing. It's not me. Um, I'm not useless at making decisions. There are just too many for me to make. The strategy I need to employ is to outsource as much as I can to other people, get the really important decisions close to me. You know, there are steps I can take to to control that situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're fortunate and you have a company that is employing a company such as yours or, you know, has... HR global mobility teams that are aware of all of these challenges then obviously you're going to have that the, the opportunity to for that support and to think in that way but I'm I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you you speak and you know you talk about all these wonderful services and support that you're providing you know there are so many people around the world who are, who are getting a very limited amount of that and access to that that um and um so I guess perhaps I would just 
perhaps just to finish the conversation, um, because I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are expats who perhaps have mm. minimal support. What would you suggest to them you know, if you were going to offer a couple of prime tips for how they mm. approach the next few months of their mobility experience? What would you mm. suggest? Putting you a bit on the spot there, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's um, I would suggest... Um, and this is something I would have said to people pre-COVID because I think it's the most important thing for an expat to bear in mind, um, and it applies equally now, and that is to continue with an attitude of curiosity. So pre-COVID, I might have said, you know, curiosity means when you're in a country and something looks ridiculous uh, in terms of the way it's done um, and it's easy to criticise, instead saying, I wonder why it is you know, happening that way or what's the reason behind it and trying to understand it. And I think taking that attitude into COVID too, you know, like you might be feeling overwhelmed and suddenly you can't make any decisions. Now, why is that? Could I just have a bit of a look even around the internet and and sort of Google some information about um, decisions and how other expats are feeling about things? I wonder how my friends, let me, I'd be curious about other expats and whether they're experiencing the same thing or not. Mm. Um, you know, could I actually ask my employer um, whether this is something that other expats are experiencing or what sort of support you know might be available for me in my business. So if you take that attitude of curiosity to problems um, at the moment, I think that will help you towards solutions. Uh, and you're absolutely right, not all employers are going to be you know giving you the solution on a platter, but at least be asking the question of your employers, your friends, the internet, you know, don't let yourself, um, uh, you know, go down uh, without at least asking some questions. <laughs> yeah. Don't go down well, into negativity, um, I yeah, think would be yeah. the main point. Ask, asking for help. I mean, I think that's always, you know, people think perhaps it's a sign of weakness, but it, it's, it's yeah. not. Um, so, yeah. And I think, again, <laughs> in terms, whether it's pre-COVID or now, asking yourself the question, with a sense of curiosity, how can I make my life easier? Mm. You know, as an expat, sometimes the difficulties seem overwhelming. Mm. But if you flip it around, instead of looking at the difficulties, say, how could I make my life easier? You know, could my employer help? Could my friends help? Um, you know, and, and try and pursue yeah. some of those options if you can. Yeah. But just yeah, keep that no, really curiosity in mind because at the moment, you know, in the past, expat curiosity was all about, oh, how much travel can I do? And, you know, oh, that's wonderful, but we can't do that at the moment. So turn your curiosity <laughs> around to your well-being. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, really good idea. Yes. Yeah. Great. So if people would like to get in touch with you and connect with you, how can they do that? Right, if you're on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you could look up my name, Bridget Romains, there and drop me a message. Um, we also um, publish quite a lot on LinkedIn, so there's quite a few articles in my profile on wellbeing there, if that's something you're interested in. Um, or our website, www.mobile-relocation.com. Again, you can contact me through that. Um, but really, I think in these sort of times, um, I suppose my main uh, message to people is that there are uh, organisations out there, both businesses and also mobility companies, who, who do care about people and want to do things differently and do the best for their employees. So I guess it's a message of hope and optimism 
um, that it is possible to still have a good expat life even in the middle of a COVID. It'll be a different expat life to the one you had prior to January or February this year, um, but it is still possible. Yeah, yeah. And certainly I can vouch from that, from listening to all the conversations that are going around on um, that include new service providers, global mobility, in HR, um, from corporates and and uh non-profits and you know just so much conversation going on at the moment about support for internationally mobile people um i think yeah i think some exciting things will come from this actually going forward well certainly they have from what you've been talking about this evening so um today not this evening for me morning for you um but yes (laughs) lots of innovative ideas and you know progression which is exciting exciting so hopefully a positive um, future for global mobility going forward once we get through the yeah. the next six to 12 months of pandemic I suspect but thank you very much for your time My pleasure. well thank you for inviting me to uh to be invo- involved in the podcast it's exciting and you know I think you're just amazing the way you are always thinking of new ideas and discovering new people and yeah it's wonderful <laughs> it's particularly valuable you know, down at, in New Zealand at the bottom of the world here, we don't have a big global mobility industry. You know, we look outwards a lot for mm. inspiration. Um, so, yeah, it's great. We very feel feel quite connected. So the, the joy of technology too. Well, it's lovely to know you're listening. So that's great. Oh, yes. <laughs> that makes me very happy too. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Bye. And thanks for listening today. Remember to access the blog post and transcript, go to thrivingabroad.com and look for episode 70. And do get in touch if there is anywhere in which I can support you. You can email me directly, louise at louisewiles.com. I help HR teams support the well-being of their international employees, as well as working directly with people who are internationally mobile. And while you're at the website, thrivingboard.com, don't forget to subscribe to the regular podcast newsletter so I can keep you up to date with all the latest Thriving Board news. Thank you once again to Bridget for joining us. Remember, go to mobile-relocations.com to learn more about her relocation services. I'll be back soon with the next episode in the Thriving Board podcast series. Meanwhile, take care and stay well wherever you are in the world. Bye-bye for now.